This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy. This, I don't know, I call it a moderate weather-wise Sunday morning. Um, Rainbow Doc here this morning, joined by Miss Medic. Hello. Hello. And Dr. Malice. Good morning. Good morning. And Panel Beater. Oh, good morning. Lovely to have you on the mic anchoring our show this morning. It's lovely to have you on Brilliant. the mic too. I'm not sure if it's wise. Is it wise to have Panel Beater <laughs> on the mic? Of course. Yes, I think so. So this morning, thanks to Radio Marinara team, of course, um, this morning we are going to do our usual news catch-up. We are going to talk about art therapy. What is it? How does it work? Who can benefit? Who's it for? We're going to talk about uh, alleged bullying. We're going to talk about changes to the role of pharmacists, potentially. And we're going to talk about sexology. There's a conference at the moment that I have stepped out of this weekend um, on sexology. So we'll talk about what that is and what they talk about in could I, I just imagine ask, they talk oh, about everything in there. And could I ask, is it just talk or is there demo? <laughs> you have to wait. Oh, <laughs> all right, can't wait. What yeah. do you mean in the studio today? <laughs> well, I might step out. That'd be a sort of visual medium. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so <clears throat> we're not doing We've that yet. We've set the tone. We've set we? the tone. Oh, we have set the tone. <laughs> so what's happening in your world? Oh, in my world. Well, I am this morning feeling the fatigue that comes from um, stepping back in time to have a very needy child overnight. So my eight-year-old had her tonsils out on Tuesday and she was awake at one, three, five in pain overnight. So poor little mite. It's day five today, which is apparently the peak of pain post-tonsillectomy. So... It was not the easiest of nights, so I'm with you, dear listeners, that may have been up attending to a needy child or a sick loved one. It, it's tough. Um, Thank you for being here. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure, as always, but um, lots of love being sent to my little girl at home who's being such a trooper. Miss Maddie, how um, prevalent is tonsillitis that leads to tonsillectomy at the moment? So actually tonsillitis, chronic tonsillitis or ongoing tonsillitis is probably the, um, it's not the major reason for tonsillectomy most cases nowadays, but it certainly was for my daughter. She'd had um, six bouts of bacterial tonsillitis sort of back to back, never quite clearing with antibiotics. And so we were left with this as being our our next option. Um, But the most common indication for tonsillectomy nowadays for children is obstructive sleep apnea. So they have enlarged tonsils leading to snoring and then breaks in their breathing overnight, which can have sort of lots of knock-on consequences for for children. And that's actually the number one indication for tonsillectomy nowadays. Gee, that's changed a lot. I remember as a kid there were 
a lot of kids would go off and have their tonsils whipped yes. out. Just, you know, have tonsillitis twice and the tonsils mm. will be whipped out. That yep. doesn't happen anymore. That doesn't happen anymore. And certainly a lot of the time tonsillitis is viral versus bacterial and that's probably not well understood. Um, but in the case of my, my daughter, well, you know, we swabbed her throat, we grew the bacteria, it was all pretty clear. And I certainly was very keen to avoid surgery um, if possible. But when we saw the ear, nose and throat surgeon, she did say to me, well, how long are we just going to keep doing this? Which was, you know, pretty much back-to-back antibiotics for my daughter, which, you know, was not a... Um, it wasn't a fair thing for her. So, yeah, we had to make another call. But being a medical mum, I found it incredibly uncomfortable handing my child over um, to the surgeons. And um, But obviously she was in very good hands and things went very well. But um, it is not an easy thing. It's a very unnatural feeling to hand your child over to be put under a general anaesthesia. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure any of the listeners out there have been in similar circumstances just know how, you know, challenging that is as a parent. Yeah, particularly particularly for doctors, you say. When you talk about, you know, we gr- we grew the bacteria, I just had an image of you doing it in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And that's the other thing is probably far too involved in her medical care, which, you know, I need to probably keep a check of. But it's, that's an ongoing challenge and something we've talked about previously on the, on the show about finding that uh, balance between mother and being doctor. <laughs> What's been happening... For you, Dr Malice? Well, it's hard to follow up just a, a brief a personal anecdote that mm. I also had chronic tonsillitis as a youngster and uh, I was taken to a surgeon uh, by my mum at, and I was about 10 or 11 and he at that stage practised in Collins Street and I remember the dread of going to see the surgeon because to me that was going to be deciding my life because that would have been my first surgical experience. And he took the history and said, oh, you've only had one or two in the last few years each year. And therefore, around adolescent, this was the teaching back then, it's possible that you'll grow out of it. Now, is that just a question? Is that something that is still a current notion that you can grow out of attacks of tonsillitis from an immature immune system? Uh, I think that it certainly is possible that it can be more common in childhood Mm. and less common as you get older. Um, And I think there's lots of reasons for that, including just that less exposure. It's all Mm. like, you know, kids get so much more germ exposure than we do as adults until we have our own children and then we're exposed all again. Um, So I think it was probably come down to that. But we certainly see some teenagers get into lots of trouble with lots of tonsillitis Mm. as well. So I I, I reckon I was pretty lucky and he said, look, we'll just wait and see. He was obviously a very conservative surgeon or perhaps saw my panic and didn't want a patient who was going to be panicking even at the thought of surgery. And uh, fortunately, I did grow out of it. But I I know that that is a a very vulnerable place for anybody, especially a child around the throat, around the mouth, Mm. or anything around the face. It's a highly sensitive area. So speedy recovery to mum and your daughter. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Uh, On on the news front, uh, I've seen the most incredible documentary that's raising very profound discussion, both professionals uh, in here in Australia and over overseas with my colleagues, a documentary called Three Identical Strangers, uh, and it concerns triplets who were adopted out uh, after about six months, this is in the 1960s, 
And the amazing, I won't obviously spoil the, the story, but the amazing thing, they didn't know they were triplets till the, one of them, and this is the intro in the documentary, goes to college and he's greeted by guys high-fiving him, slapping him on the back, girls coming and kissing him on the lips and saying, it's so lovely to see you back here, and calling him by what he thought was the wrong name. But given the warmth of the greetings, he just played along with it and said, yeah, I'm back. And so he got more hugs and kisses until a guy came up to him and said, hi, when's your birthday? And because he was obviously looking quite puzzled and he was told it's nice to be back and he confessed, I'm, I'm not back, it's the first time I'm here. And he said, well, when's your birthday? And it was on the same day as this guy's friend. So this friend of the same day birthday guy said, I think you're a twin. He goes, oh, come on, like, you know, I've heard tall stories now. He said, no, no, let me give you a phone call. They went into a phone booth, rang up the guy, said, you know, what's your birthday? What's your birthday? Find out they're the same birthdays. They hop in a car, drive down to the friend's place, and the moment they look at each other, it's reconstructed. It's like looking in a mirror and one moves to the left, the other moves to the left, and, and it's the most extraordinary moment encountering your twin, who you didn't even know, an identical twin. It's like that movie, The Parent Trap. Do you remember that movie, everyone? Yes. That yeah. With, with uh, was it Haley Lewis back in the day, that, and then yes. and then remade by Lindsay Lohan. That's right. Now, and it's yeah, these <laughs> to these, yeah. Life is Good strange. name recall. Life is stranger than fiction. And and yeah. not not only do these two become obviously uh, recognisable identical twins. The newspaper picks up the story and a mother reads and sees the photo on the front page of the New York Times and says, what were you doing last night out partying with this guy? And this other person says, I wasn't, I was somewhere else. He goes, no, don't lie to me, you're in the paper. So he discovers he's identical to them and therefore he's one of the triplets. Amazing. Now, this is the most amazing story just on this level of finding out that you're one of three, hence uh, three identical, but... They're strangers. And the twist comes that they were actually part of an experiment conducted by an adoption agency and a very senior child psychiatrist analyst at the time who is a doyen in the world of my profession. And this was all secretly done and no parent was told that the child they're adopting is actually either a twin or a triplet. And so the second half of the film, without spoiling it, goes into how they are total strangers to each other as well. And the bottom line here is the age-old debate about nature and nurture, which this uh, documentary was purporting to say. Identical twins located in different families. So their genetic makeup is the same, but their environment was chosen to be high economic family, middle economic and low economic family. Therefore, the environment to be different. And the, uh, the, the rest of the film actually uncovers the twists and turns and the amazing cover-ups that are still now cover-ups because this study is in an embargoed state till 2066 in Yale University, presumably so no one can sue anyone and all those participants would have passed on. But at this point, is it even legal to hold up the embargo? Now, this is the question. Apparently, everyone concerned is lawyered up. and this I bet is they are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, this is an academy, not academy, but a festival-winning 
a, a documentary and this is why it's causing a major discussion point in mental health professions and of course twins and triplets who have a lot of issues that they may like to understand about themselves which the embargo is still as as we speak in in place long time to wait yes there's a long time to wait mm. i don't know that i'll be around well, I think that was the intention of keeping this yeah. under wraps as an yeah. embargo till 2066. It is a long time to wait, but I'm not even processing it as a waiting game. I'm processing it as an injustice. This is like yes. institutionalisation mm. yes. of kids and the experimentation that took yes. place with kids, yeah. yes. let alone some of the historical records on yes. twin experiments that we exactly. know Exactly. Mm. Well, in fact, if you raise the twin experiment, mm. the notorious association paradoxically... Yep was the Mengele Holocaust twin experiments and the irony, if one can use such a word in this situation, that the chief investigator, Professor Peter Neuberg, was a refugee from Nazi Germany himself. Mm. So the the twists and turns uh, are amazing. So it's something to think about. Not for everyone, obviously, a film is not pure entertainment, but enthralling of what is going on in real life. Thank you for that, mm. Dr. Manis. You're with Radiotherapy. It is a quarter past ten, 15 minutes past ten. Rainbow Doc with you here with Miss Medic, Dr. Malice, and Panel Beta. And in a moment, we'll look at further news at those news things that are grabbing us. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a You're with Radiotherapy. Miss Medic, what's what's caught your eye in the news this week? So this week it has been revealed uh, in the news that Westmead Hospital ICU has been stripped of training accreditation over um, the allegations of long-standing bullying within the department. And this is quite an astounding step, I feel. So the College of Intensive Care Medicine has... Uh, revoked this major hospital in the west of Sydney from having accreditation to be a training facility, so for upcoming um, ICU consultants, um, because of the bullying that's been alleged to be going on in the department. So it's it's quite incredible. I guess it sort of all exists within the context. Uh, over the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about sort of institutionalised bullying and this culture of bullying that exists within medicine. And a few years ago, we saw the response of the Royal College of Surgeons um, with regards to similar sort of circumstances. Uh, but this is the first move that I know of where they've actually been stripped of their training accreditation. Um, so it kind of... Like it, to me, a, a couple of things come up. Firstly, I think, oh my God, what is going on? Like, how how did we get here? Um, are we still here? Is anything changing? And the second thing that comes to mind is, uh, is this the right step? Like, I, I, it's it certainly makes a statement, but it still is in the realm of being really punitive and. Um, and I think that if we want to think about how we change this kind of environment, it's going to take 
a million small cultural steps to move away from this. And I'm just not convinced that this this is going to be the way forward. And I, you know, I, I, I can't... Um, I'm not sure how we go about changing it all over, but it doesn't 100% ring true to me as as being like the right move. But it's it's an interesting step. I guess it shows it shows that there, there's going to be a lack of tolerance. But for the individual perpetrators or and the culture, is there really going to be a shift? And that's what, the question. What, what impact do you think it has on the general public? You know, when we hear about this mm-hmm. in the medical profession i mean we i mean we hear about bullying in the workplace you know f- throughout throughout all all kinds of workplaces but do you think there's a a particular thing about this within the medical profession i do think that there is something about the medical profession that leads itself to lends itself to this um i do think that the it can be very damaging for the general public and it can cause a decrease in confidence in terms of um confidence and respect and uh, um, a sense of trust in the medical profession, which can be very damaging. There's been no claim that there was any compromise to patient safety as a direct result of this, but you would have to think, you could extrapolate out that it's not the be- in the best interest of patients for there to be this culture within a medical department and there to be some staff feeling like that they are being victimised and bullied. That certainly can't be good for their uh, their function as a medical professional. So, um, I, look, and if, yeah, in terms of why this occurs in medicine, I think it's I think it goes back, you know, hundreds of years. Um, is there this sense of a um, you know this godlike authority of doctors, and where does that come from? How do we get rid of that? Is there this culture of sort of cyclical victimization, like the victim becomes the perpetrator, and I went through it, so you'll go through it? Yeah, I think that does exist, and I'm, I'm I think that's why I think it's going to take so many small changes to move into a different culture. It's almost like when. It, we've been tackling domestic violence and those sort, those you know, horrible things for years by just by you know, not talking about yeah, it, not talking about mm. it, but then taking down the the perpetrators with the law once the act, once it's already happened, and now we're starting to understand it's about intervening of those, you know, those kind of sneaky misogynist comments that can just slide under the table it's about speaking up at that point rather than waiting for something to happen and then coming down with a heavy fist well as hard as it may seem to speak up at that point that's actually easier than having the courage to call it when it's a really major issue i mean that's the thing that's changed is people are speaking up about it yeah also, I think that uh, in the medical culture, at least in the journals, and the Medical Journal of Australia being one case in point, has been running uh, more and more articles on what is called burnout. Now, once it's recognised that junior, do- and this is particularly towards junior doctors, are vulnerable to this condition, which is called burnout, then the questions start being asked, well, what are the sort of settings and what culture and what causes some doctors to burn out and others not. And clearly the common ideas that are floated are workplace pressure in terms of longevity of hours uh, from Friday morning to Monday night, long weekends or on-call duty, 
the type of patients, say in emergency wards, especially if there's serious risk to personal danger and personal physical safety and danger. And now more and more then questions are also being asked about relationships between the junior and senior staff. And this is where the culture is changing on a macro level of shining a focus on the lifestyle, as it were, in the workplace and under the banner of workplace safety. And first responders also, ambulance, fire, police and so on, first responders are known to be in a higher risk for certain stresses for burnout. And if bullying occurs, perhaps the culture is now allowing that to become part of the conversation, whereas previously it hasn't. Now, my hearing this for the first time, to revoke a teaching accreditation is a massive te test of the system. And is it reflecting the incredible systemic dysfunction that it is so far beyond any individual that this is the only leverage to intervene? that there are too many people in the system sustaining the dysfunctional uh, abuse or misuse of their power or rank or authority, that in fact there's no other leverage. I think that they, that's definitely true. And from what I've heard anecdotally about some of these departments is that, and it is described completely like that, as oh. dysfunctional departments. Oh, oh, yeah. um, so I think... It just, how did we get there? It just, um, I, I can't imagine um, how, how we've allowed it to go on for so long when we are in the business of care, compassion, yes. integrity and, you know, doing the right thing for people, including our colleagues, aren't we? Well, and now including ourselves. Exactly. Ms Medic, you, you brought, it, brought it to our attention by way of, um, I guess, in the most loosest definition of the word, policy change and, you know, some response to the identification of bullying as, bullying as a workplace issue. To me, um, and from, you know, where I enter into conversations about uh, culture and sociology of health and sociology of organisations and so on, um, it, it seems like it's a pass-the-buck response. So hospital management and medical leadership... Um, uh, are faced, whether they are cognisant of it or not, with choosing between cultural change and therefore significant organisational change or um, maintaining the same structures and organisational um, tools um, but inserting new rules and regulations so that if, if somebody's identified as being bullying and we could have a whole conversation about whether we're any good at identifying bullying, um, but uh, so instead of responding to the cultural causes of those sorts of behaviours, we institute rules and regulations in the workplace, which I think there would be an argument that often rules and regulations are part of the story of what generates bullying in the first place because people feel powerless. They feel constrained by rules and regulations mm -hmm. that they, they find um, that in, in some way there's an editing going on about their expression of their professionalism and so on. What do you, how would you hear that? Look, I 100% I agree with you, but and I, I just think that it's um, 
for me that just means that it's easier to impose rules and regulations mm. than it is to make cultural change and perhaps so we're also in it that we can't even see what those cultural changes are and how they're going to even take place and where do you start can you change the system as it exists or do we have to start with the the new folk coming through i mean it, it's it who knows when we think that if it's so ingrained it's so part of these dysfunctional departments well uh, kui bono the that latin phrase that tells us just to simply ask who benefits from the way things are and there's our answer we go to who benefits from how the organizations are currently organized and run we go to them and say you're the ones who are going to lose if there's a cultural change but you know these people that we'll be talking to will be the senior management policy makers, et cetera, et cetera, of hospitals, uh, ministries of health, et cetera. They're the ones who've got most to lose by treating it as a cultural change rather than an organisational rule and regulation, I imagine. Yeah, like, and I can 100% say that. So it's... Um, I, I think that it, it, it's going to take just years of small moves in the right direction before we get there. That's the only way. I, what would what would you suggest, Panel Vita? Just out with the top the top layer. <laughs> you storm the barricades. Yeah. Well, <laughs> look, I think there has been some suggestions of that in the media about identifying the older, overarching consultant that sets the tone and moving them on. Yeah. But you know that's not easy either, and we lose a skill set with that too. So it, it's a incredibly complex. What one of the solutions, and this is the American experience, I'm not suggesting we import that here, but instead of waiting for years and years and years for micro-change, sometimes the law steps in and has a case. And that wakes up everybody very quickly on what are the responsibilities of workplace safety. Precisely. If bullying is as prevalent as it is, it warrants the same kind of attention we've given to banking corruption, yeah. to institutional abuse, etc., etc. And I don't think there's any equivocal um, statistic about the impact of bullying in the workplace culturally and nationwide. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Miss Medic, the change, possible change, well, to the role of pharmacists and how that, how's that going to affect GPs? Mm, so this is a really interesting one and it's been something going on for some time as um, the very powerful Guild of Pharmacists sort of makes some moves to take over a few more responsibilities. Um, and in uh, just last week, the Victoria's state opposition um, announced that should they get through in November that they would be allowing pharmacists to issue repeats for the contraceptive pill, um, meaning that a woman could get her very first initial prescription for the oral contraceptive pill from her GP, but repeats from there on in would then be done by... could be done by the pharmacist without the woman needing to see the GP again. Um, and, you know, the College of General Practitioners and I guess my, myself personally have got some real concerns about this. I was going to say, for, from a consumer point of view, it's, oh, that's going to make things a hell of a lot easier to well, not that's have to, you know, queue up, get an appointment. Yeah, and I think that's that's been the push, that, you mm. know, women have rights over their reproductive health, um, 
it's going to be quicker and cheaper for them to potentially bypass the GP and just see the pharmacist. Um, however, there's a few things that make me concerned. Um, I guess specific to this instance, the thing that makes me concerned is that you know the pill, yes, can be a safe medication for sure, but it has got some significant problems, including increased risk of uh, thromboembolic disease like DVT or um, pulmonary embolism, so clots on the lungs, uh, increased risk of stroke. Um, and so, you know, so it's not a, just a, a nothing medication by all means. And so when we're, we're removing the woman sort of checking in with the GP, we're saying that, oh, their, their risk factors at one point in time continue on, which we know is not necessarily true. Those new risk factors leading them more likely to have these problems with the pill can change over a woman's reproductive life. Um, So that's one thing that makes me concerned. And I also just am concerned about the loss of the opportunistic discussions that take place with a woman when she comes in to see a GP about the getting another script for the pill, um, you know, STI screening, so sexually transmitted infection screening, um, you know, discussing is there a more appropriate contraceptive for this woman at this point in their life, you know, things like IUDs or Implanon, which are long-acting but reversible contraceptive agents that are very good because they're not reliant on you remembering to take a pill every day. And they're not discussions you're going to have over the counter in a pharmacy well no and and you know and i think those discussions really do need to involve their and it very individual um Mm. decision like what's the best contraceptive for you in where you're at in life at this point in time is a you know it's a, a discussion that should take place with the doctor so we're missing the opportunity for that and the other one that comes to mind for me is that i often talk to women when they come in for their pill script about their their family plans so you know it might be that it will commonly come up that a woman comes in and says oh I'm just after a pill script and I'm like well how's it all going and you know how's things in general and you know depending where I know they're at at life you know I might ask about their plans towards children they might say oh yeah well I'm just going to go off it after the next three months and try to conceive but um you know that preconception counseling about going on some folate doing some blood tests you know healthy lifestyle and all of that stuff is vital and i feel like if that doesn't women don't necessarily know to go in and see their doctor for that conversation so it's that real opportunistic really you know great care that we can provide when a woman comes in for the pill script that makes it more than just getting a repeat prescription so and look I think and it's just a good opportunity to check in about someone's general health so that look they're my concerns specific to that uh, the case of the contraceptive pill but I guess the other thing that worries me is more on a broader um, in a more of a broader sense that pharmacists exist in a retail space and we don't as general practitioners and in fact there's really clear rules around not allowing doctors to dispense medication because it it becomes almost like a conflict of interest if there's an ability to make money off what we are prescribing then the waters get muddied yet we're handing this over to pharmacists to say yes you can sit amongst all those vitamins and minerals that we know do next to nothing for your health and and provide medical 
advice, but also there's a whole new, there's a whole show in that <laughs> well, statement well, well, you just well, made. Well, been there, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and, the, and we're we're allowing them to to give advice about med, uh, medications that they can also make money off. So there's I have a concern about that, and I think that that's not something to be overlooked. That muddying of the waters of having. Um, you know, existing in a retail space, but providing medical professional advice. So I'm I'm sitting quite close to you, Miss Maddock, but I'm mm. still going to say this. <laughs> 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 Moving sharp. We're, we're, we're all, we're all I'm yes. gearing up. Right. This, okay. this, stance. this isn't about this isn't about general practitioners losing control. I, I've heard that thought about why, like, it, I feel it's, you know, it goes against the grain. And, um, no, I actually, it's not. It's not. I don't, I mean, I don't, I, I, mean, I want people to get their health care from wherever, you know, is appropriate and right for them. I'm not trying to drum up business. I certainly have lots of patients that are waiting to see me. So, no, that's not what this is about. And it's not about relinquishing. It's not that I don't think pharmacists are capable of doing what we do you know they're smart individuals absolutely I think that they're capable I just don't think I think we're starting to mix roles here and and I'm concerned about where that goes because this doesn't just exist about the contraceptive pill there's also been a move and it's already happened in New South Wales that travel vaccines and other vaccines can be um, you know prescribed and and given by the pharmacist without the a G, without a medical prescription, which you know starts to get really complicated in terms of assessing you know should this person have the vaccine because you you know you're selling them too so this you know it, and vaccines are expensive travel vaccines are very expensive so I I feel like it it's about the breadth of where this could go. Um, and I don't. It's not so. It's not a turf war. It's about, you know, what what are the ramifications of this, and you know, is there potential for harm for our patients? So, Miss Medic, as a as a GP, can you strong arm the argument? Can you tell us what you would understand the pharmacist's response in lieu of not having a pharmacist in the room? What is the pharmacist's argument for being able to take this on? So I guess their argument would exist along the lines of um, we can provide the service um, if there is a delay to seeing GPs then, um, you know, we can certainly bypass that, that this is safe, you know, we're able to risk assess people. Uh, and I and imagine they'll say, you know, there'll, there'll be some, I imagine there'd be some, like, tick sheet that they would go through to assess risk and if there was any concerns refer them back to the GP I hope um, so I can see why they sit and why they would think that this could all be fine but it does it it's just still raises concerns with me about their intent like what what is what's what's this about and I fear it is all about money making there has the pharmacists have been um, demonstrated to show that recently, uh, uh, and even um, I can't remember which 
training provider it was, but it was a pharmacy sort of tra- training provider that sort of talked about the the Coke and Fries approach to pharmacy of saying, well, you know, you're getting your antibiotics. What about some probiotics? Like that add-on selling. And if that's going on, then I'm concerned that this is just about revenue raising. And presumably there were reasons why the system that we have now first came into effect to to separate those roles, as you yeah. described before. And I guess the other thing that's happened recently with pharmacy is that codeine used to be available over the counter and now is requires a prescription. So to me that says something about um, it not working, just having... Uh, pharmacists able to dispense over-the-counter medications that do have real safety issues for patients. Three triple R. And um, I'm here in the middle of a conference, really. I've spent all yesterday locked up in a room in Melbourne talking about sexology at the... uh, I have to remember what this is. This is the first symposium that has taken place of its kind in Melbourne, um, organised by the Society of Australian Sexologists, and it's called SIPS, which is Sexology in Practice Symposium. And it's about... There are about 100 people sitting in a room talking about sex for two days. Sounds my local pub. Yeah, moving right along. <laughs> two days. <laughs> yeah, two days. Health prof- sec- um, I'm often asked, what you know, what is a sexologist? A sexologist is m- mainly they are sex therapists, um, sex therapists who are qualified at master's level. Um, there are two courses in Australia, one at Sydney University and the other at Curtin University in Western Australia. Um, so sexologists, sex therapists, also people that are uh, health professionals and are talking about sex and working in some way um, with their patients or clients, um, which involves talking about sexology, uh, talking about sexuality. So and what's a sex therapist, can I ask? A sex therapist is someone that um, has particular qualifications to and knowledge and experience to talk about people's difficulties um, in the bedroom or outside the bedroom, to talk about um, um, things like premature ejaculation, for instance, would be something that, you know, most people have concept of what that is, to go to someone that, that, that has special skills in helping them overcome that. Um, often using uh, psychological approaches, mainly psychological approaches. Um, Physiotherapists come into this sometimes to help. Um, People like yourselves, medical profession, come come into this. Um, But it's a a profession as a sex therapist, which is really hard to... um, It's hard to promote yourself. It's hard to be taken seriously because... um, comments such as panel beaters <laughs> but isn't is it, oh. okay but there are that. some really serious issues that are being discussed in in that room over this weekend mm. for instance the uh yesterday um 
we heard about the impact on people's sexuality of cancer treatments. Mm. Um, and um, there's been some research that has shown that the overwhelming majority of um, cancer patients and the medical profession want to think that sex should be talked about in that in the context of the treatment but uh, less than half of the patients actually do have that opportunity to do that um, and of course you're not talking just about the patient you're talking about their partners as well so how to go about that and how to change change that um, which is really through awareness and education of medical practitioners, well, of all health practitioners. Um, we talked about the word uh, penetration, why penetration is perhaps not the best word to be using when we're talking about penis and vagina sex because um, it's, it's from a male perspective. You know, if you think about the way that we'd use the, the word penetration in other in other, uh, with other um, contexts, it's about there's some sort of force implied. Um, uh, it's as I said, it's from the male perspective, and instead we're talking about how about um, you know the uh, receptive, receptive, enveloping, embracing, welcoming in, whatever it might be, but talking about. Um, what we now call penetration from a female perspective. We talked about consent a lot, um, consent in terms of improving pleasure rather than consent to avoid um, violation. Um, we talked about uh, education in schools, how that has changed, and also the resistance of schools to, to have what is generally called sex ed and suggested it should have another name. It should be called, you know, um, talking about sexuality or something rather than this, this, this concept of, of sex ed because there's a lot of um, dispute about what sex is. So what do we, what do we actually, you know, if I say to you, what, what, what is sex? Hmm. Not silence. Paddlebeater, <laughs> you've been in the pub. Well, yeah, I know it sounded like a uh, relatively flippant thing to say, but um, I, I quickly then went um, into cultural relativist mode. And I'm lucky that um, the people that I socialise with in the pub um, are male and female, variety of um, genders and sexualities, a uh, variety of stages in life, um, different socioeconomic kind of backgrounds and so on. So it was a flippant comment to say, but but I was, I guess, also expressing that... It, that that these public places where sex can be talked about constructively, perhaps with a bit of humour, but also in the vernacular where people are communicating their experience in a way that's comfortable for them to experience, uh, to uh, to express. These are the things that I think are a part of, you know, um, we go back to cultural change, go back to being able to talk about these, to take the conversation you had in the pub on Friday night to the GP you go and see on Monday morning and go, hey, my mates were saying this thing and I was reflecting over the weekend and maybe that's different for me, can I speak to you about it? You know, th those kind of um, constructive triggers for yeah. conversations public I, I think are really um, opportunistic. Yeah, and I, th I think people are talking more about their their sexuality generally you know in the pub or elsewhere um 
than in the past. But nevertheless, there's still that sense of uh, are people really talking about what they need to talk about? Because, you know, they're not talking about it with intimates. They're talking about it with mates, if you want, you know. Um, and there can be an awful lot of shame that is attached um, to sexual content for people that are listening to the conversation and saying, oh, that's not me or I don't know what you're talking about or that makes me feel really uncomfortable and, and what to do with that. Um, because what can happen is people, you know, immediately sort of retreat from that discussion um, and and find it really hard to, to go to... Um, a, a medical professional or any profession, health professional and, and talk about their, their sexuality. Um, and it really needs to start in the schools. You know, if kids are growing up being able to talk about it, it's going to make it a hell of a lot easier. The problem is that they need to be talked about it by their parents and the parents obviously often have problems talking about it themselves agreeing with the whole idea that it's a, a topic and experience that culturally many people withdraw from how is it it's taken this long to have the first symposium by the very profession that's actually immersed in the expertise is that it cultural resistance or their lack of wish to be confronting to the culture or what's going on they're quite small in australia there are just over 200 members right. and most of those you know, I'm a member I'm not accredited I'm not a sex therapist accredited sex therapist which means I haven't done that particular training or that done the supervision or whatever so there there aren't many that are accredited and with those numbers it's hard to organize right. so there have been conferences get-togethers whatever you want to call it there have been but this is about um this is about in this is about it being in practice mm. yeah so it's a it's kind of a new approach so there's people talking in their specific areas um uh and there's a desire to um you know ramp it up and get more more people in there in victoria there's just over 50 people you know that's not many mm. Mm. for an organization when you think that you know everyone has sexuality and there's, there's just over 50 people that are sitting in that room from Victoria. It's not many. So what is the outcome of this conference, or is it still ongoing? To where, where, where to from here to spread the word, as it were? Where to from here? It's going to be an annual... This will be an annual oh. event. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about it here. Yes. Mm. Um, and we would, you know, we would welcome anyone from um, allied health professionals mm. medics to to come and be part of it you know because it affects anyone working working in these professions we all need to be talking about sex mm. there was um a, a, just just to to wrap that up there were a lot of food comparisons <laughs> a lot of food comparisons now you have to explain what you mean <clears throat> what i mean is you know no, how do you how do you go about talking about sex um, if you compare it to, you know, do you like do you like pizza or do you prefer a curry? <laughs> oh, I, both actually. Um, pizza, careful, I would say. You careful what careful. you say. <laughs> you prefer pizza? Yes. Or you can have the same. You can have the same conversation about what you want. Um, 
in terms of your sexual desires, yeah? In terms of what I want on my pizza. What you want on your pizza, <laughs> yeah. What sort of base do you like the... the my husband's going to be like, his ears are pricking up right now. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, pepperoni? <laughs> What's your base going to be? Yeah. Gluten-free. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of talk about that. And there was also... Um, in terms of trying to empower people to have language to discuss preferences. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Why don't we talk about it? No time's tight, but the first thing I thought of when you mentioned food um, for euphemisms, uh, emojis are full of using food. Oh, yeah. For, yeah. Uh, for I t- had no sex. idea yeah. about plants. this for some time. Mm. The eggplant, yeah. 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 The eggplant. And and the other thing that I did to wrap this up that was said by um, Sandra Pettot, who's who's one of the, um, f- you know, the leaders, I guess, who's been talking about sex for a very long time. I don't want to say that... Um, I don't want to give her age away, but she has been talking about it for a long time. And she was... She's published a couple of books about libidos and mismatched libidos, as, as it's generally called. Um, said that there is nothing wrong with routine sex and there is nothing wrong with boring sex. That there is this idea that sex therapists are there to be giving everyone this really exciting, really invigorating kind of sex life. But in fact, if what floats your boat and what works for you in a partnership is, you know, every Friday night at 7.30 for... 40 minutes whatever it might be the root of some kind of routine or some kind of what might be regarded by others as boring sex if it works for you it's fantastic so sex therapists themselves need to assess their own values mm. on this as to what they're what they're trying to affect Oh, no, I was just um, looking at the... Yeah, you're just looking at the And clock. to just round it off, I'll say, you know, that on that note and bringing it back to pizza, there's the saying that, you know, pizza, sex is like pizza, even when it's bad, it's pretty good. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say to that because I don't like pizza. Oh, dear. <laughs> but that's okay. Yes. <laughs> you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Malice. Hello, I'm here. Dr. Malice, art therapy, tell us. Yes, we've had this uh, session a a few years ago and this is now moving on from where to from previous art therapy and I was inspired by a panel I was invited on at the Victoria Clinic in Paran by uh, the leading art therapist there, Dr. Uh, Carmela Greenberg who was presenting her research on what is called lived experience in participating in open studio art therapy. Now, I had no idea what open studio art therapy as opposed to ordinary, I presume, closed art therapy. And so just by way of brief background, we know that there is a definite point to art therapy. And we've covered this in the past of that it could be extremely helpful to improve the quality of our lives generally, but in particular for certain conditions, especially the psychological lens, improving psychological conditions, and the range of vulnerabilities and frailties that we all could benefit from in art 
is when it comes to our lapses in memory, the sense perhaps we're down in the dump, so we go to an art gallery and we get inspired by the imagery, the symbolism, the very fact of going to a therapy, uh, to a, 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 an exhibition, sometimes removes our sense of isolation and withdrawal. So the very process of being engaged. And perhaps most important is when we stand in front of a, a work of art and we go, oh, that's just given me a, a sort of an awareness of part of myself I didn't know actually existed. It gives us a thrill or a it can be confronting. It's not necessarily a positive feeling, but I didn't know I could be moved like that. Now, that's all general. So what's news with Carmela in Open Art Studio? And she said it's a little bit like the difference between prescribed psychological treatment and free associative. So that the inpatients she mentioned, and in fact one inpatient who was extraordinary, Lauren Matthews, has in that presentation spoke of her half a year as an inpatient and the gravity of her multiple conditions and how this open art studio changed her life. And so Carmela's six themes that in her research she discovered of what is it that it's life-changing about this spontaneous open art studio therapy. And the six themes she elicited from the participants was that it offered a new space, an interesting idea that many of them spoke about entering a room where there were no expectations and one of the themes in fact was there was no sense of bungling. You couldn't get it wrong which for many people is an amazing thing, where you're always judged, is that good or bad or productive or worthwhile or not? You couldn't bungle. It was called creativity. And they'd never had that experience, and this open art studio setting allowed that. Finding a sense of agency went with that, that if they're not judged, good or bad, they're judged on doing something from their very being, a communicative experience. And the last two were experiences that were actually beyond words. They just said it was an experiential, existential alteration. And some found the word that perhaps it was I felt joy for the first time. Oh, that's now, fantastic. Isn't that just, yeah. a, just a moving experience we overlook and take for granted that some people know pleasure and pain and joy. For them, it was for the first time they experienced this thing and they said, I guess you'd call it joy. What, what, I'm, what I'm hearing as you describe that also is that risk-taking, mm. to take that risk to whatever the art form is, to put, you know, the, the paintbrush on the paper. Yes. And this is the skill of the therapist yeah. to beckon from this withdrawn person take a step, reach out, make and take a risk. And that's yeah. the skill of the art therapist, yes. And it's been, I know at Vic Clinic they've used that yes. for, a, for a long time. They've been doing yes. art and therapy this is, there. This is 10 years' worth of work yeah. and research. So yeah. extraordinary advances in the world of art therapy. Thank you for that. Hmm. We're, we're, we're finished. <laughs> Radiotherapy is, is over. Thank, thank done. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> thank you very much, Miss Medic. Uh, total pleasure. And thank you for leading us so very well this morning. And Dr. Dr. Malice. Thank you. I'm off to have a pizza. <laughs> and panel B. <fish. laughs>
<laughs> with eggplant. <laughs> this has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.